Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi there. I want to talk to you about Doug. No, you're okay. This one, real fucking up. Okay, this is not Nam. This is bowling. There are rules. Hey, Walter, come on. Oh, you're from the neighborhood. You're right. Well, that's not entirely true. I came to see you, but where are the paperweights? That's what I want to see now. It's just torture and murder. No platinum characters. Very, very realistic. I think it's what's next. Am I hallucinating here? Just what in the hell do you think you're doing? Learn about Cuba. What? Toast to toast, my friends, to our health and cheer and happiness. Otto, let the ritual begin. Hello and welcome to the Cult Film Companion Podcast, the home of movies that are off, under, and ahead of the cinematic radar. My name is Chris, I'm your host, joined as ever with my co-host Andrew. Hello! Good evening! Good evening! We are post-Blizzard here in Rhode Island, 2022. We have survived the snow and we are here with another deep dive into a cult film and tonight we will be discussing Danny Boyle's theatrical debut movie Shallow Grave from 1994 Shallow Grave was written by John Hodge who was legitimately a medical doctor turned screenwriter and this was also his first script that was produced uh, John Hodge and Danny Boyle would go on to collaborate on several projects together. Shallow Grave was produced by Andrew McDonald. The cinematography was done by Brian Tofano. The film was edited by Masahiro Hirakubo. The music was done by Simon Boswell. The budget for Shallow Grave was $2.5 million which was co-funded by Channel 4, a British company, and also the Scottish Glasgow Film Foundation. The movie would go on to gross $19.8 million at the box office worldwide, although very little of that is actually from U.S. box office. This, this was a, a very big hit in uh, the United Kingdom and Scotland. And was actually extremely popular in France. The cast for Shallow Grave is Carrie Fox, who portrays Juliet Miller, one of the three flatmates that this movie uh, centers around. Christopher Eccleston as David Stevens, the uh, another flatmate, and making his film debut Ewan McGregor as Alex Law the third flatmate the fourth flatmate that ends up dying and uh, kind of being the the lightning bolt that kind of sh- strikes these three characters and sets them off into a uh, a very dubious um Journey, Journey. whirlwind is more like it. Yeah. Uh, Is Keith Allen, uh, who portrays a character named Hugo, a mysterious drug dealer that is um, finally let in to the flat 
And I say finally let in because we are introduced to these three characters uh, through a montage of them interviewing various potential flatmates for them. And uh, we're introduced to these characters and um, they're not very likable. They are uh, mean. They're very mean. They actually one of the they're one mean of the, to the people that they're interviewing. It's all a little game, and it's a mean game. Yeah, it is. It's it, very, yeah. It's like, are you qualified to be in our club? And we don't think you are. So there's the door. It's the too cool for school club. And, That's right. And if you're not, uh, yeah, if you're not up on their level, then uh, you're you're not getting into this flat. And uh, yeah, yeah. Before we we talk about the movie, let's let's talk about this incredible cast. Let's. All right. So, let's see. I'm on my tablet, which I never do during podcasts, but I want to do this for... Uh, I'm on IMDb right now. Let's just look at some of these people. So, Carrie, Carrie Fox was the most established. She had done a, uh, a Jane Campion movie, and I'm going to give you the name of that in just a second. So she was, yeah, she was yeah. the biggest name attached to this movie at the time. That's and, right. And uh, it was because of her casting that they were actually able to... Secure funding. Right. Okay. She uh, it was called An Angel at My Table, 1990, Jane Campion. She also did The Last Days of Chenu, which rings a bell. I always think of The Last Days of Disco, which is a different movie. Right. Yeah, me but, too. But I think, yeah, but I think, um, I think Last Days of Chenu was a big hit. If I could be wrong. So she had done quite a bit before Shallow Grave. Uh, and then she kept on, all three of them, by the way, have kept working and working and working to this day. They all three did projects in 2021. Actually, everybody, even behind the scenes, everyone in this, this movie has has had a career. I mean, uh, okay. Danny Boyle would eventually go on to, to win an Academy Award for Slumdog Millionaire. That's right, that's right. Now, uh, Christopher Eccleston yes. ended up being... He had done a lot of television before Shallow Grave, and he ended up uh, making a big splash in television with by playing one of the Doctor Whos. Correct. He was one of the Doctor Whos. Yes. And then we know what happened with Ewan McGregor. I used to, I used to live with uh, two roommates, one male, one female. It was kind of the same setup, and we had a really... <laughs> co- yeah, we had a really cool top floor apartment in Harlem with a great view and uh, we would talk about you and McGregor and um, we would CJ the the female she would she coined uh, his name she said no 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 you you're saying it wrong it's Yoon 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 yeah so that was that was his name from then on Yoon <laughs> that reminds me of Yoon I'm trying to get it right throw mama from the train but Owen! <laughs> I love that movie. Isn't that great? Uh, does that have a cult following? Oh, I'd love to do that. Uh, wow. <laughs> I don't know if we could get away with that. It's kind mm, of popular. It's Yeah, if you haven't seen Throw Mama from the Train, first of all, watch Strangers on a Train, the Alfred Hitchcock. Oh, as a precursor? It makes for a brilliant double feature. Really? Okay. Well, because you've got the serious the Strangers on a Train, the, the, the Hitchcock classic, um, and then the comedy, and, and then you have the comedic that. version of it, which is just kind of like it's. If you watch them back to back, it's kind of a mind fuck. Okay, all right, good to know. We might have to do that sometime. It's been a long time since I've seen either of them. Yeah, because it's uh, if all the things like Hitchcock has been spoofed before. Uh, most oh, notably, sure. Mel, Mel Brooks. Right. Sure. I I would say that the best though, is Throwing Mama from the Train. Okay. Uh, as far as spoofing Hitchcock, just because 
Ellen! It's... <laughs> it's... Uh, well, we're getting completely off track. Let's get back to... Sh- now, now, in. <laughs> now, now, Keith Allen, who was a TV personality who plays Hugo, um, also played a drug dealer in... Um, Train spotting, correct. After shallow grave, right. So the the chronology, the the fictional chronology for that would be that train spotting is supposed to take place in the late eighties, and his character then went on to become a flatmate with these two in shallow grave, and then eventually overdosing, dying, and setting into motion. Totally naked, so it'd be like seeing Conan O'Brien not only doing a cameo, but, the, well, I guess Janet Lee was totally naked, even though you don't see all of it Right, in yeah, so let's, uh, yeah. So, Keith Allen, we'll, we'll yes. just, we should probably get some background. Sure. Uh, because if you're, uh, to us, we were watching it, and to me, I, I didn't recognize Keith Allen. And I didn't rec- so as Hugo from what from t- transporting or okay well, no I just didn't recognize in sure, this no. one watching Shallow Grave yeah right so Keith Allen was a very popular in, in Britain they call it a TV presenter we would say host okay so he had a variety of different shows he was a well known TV presenter he had been in films before he had uh, written he had been an actor he had done music so he was very well known so when i, I made the um, off mics i made the conan and brian analogy just because uh, conan o'brien is a tv host he's acted he was a, a writer he he's done music so that's kind of why i made that comparison okay, there okay got it um so to so if you were watching this movie and all of a sudden, you see someone like Conan O'Brien, who's a, a notable, well-known character, uh, well, well-known personality, come onto your screen. You wouldn't think that he was a character that was going to die, right? Which is why they cast Keith Allen to be. You You're know, thinking, oh, this this is going to be interesting, and then all of a sudden he's dead. You think that he's going to be okay? You're looking forward to it, dynamics between the four of them. Exactly, going to yeah. be like, okay, how is he going to shake up the, the, this yeah. relationship? Because yeah. um, we'll talk about these three characters. You know, we don't have, and we're not privy to how that they came to live together mm-hmm. because they don't. They all have very distinct uh, lines of work. Um, that wouldn't normally cross paths. Right. Uh, ju- so uh, I- Juliet is a doctor. David is an accountant. And Alex is a tabloid journalist. Mm-hmm. So we... And their relationship, the way that they kind of jockey and jive with one another and kind of like rib each other... like. I, I, I kind of see it as like friends out of necessity that they they're they're almost like one of them initially lived lived at this flat a roommate moved out one of the, somebody else one of the other characters came in because they kind of seem like three random people kind of thrown together right but there is a chemistry between them and they run with it and then as is often the case when you're young and you are <laughs> how shall I put this when you're young and, and 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 attractive and you've got young and attractive friends and you're living together you kind of create your own world together and the rest of the world can basically fuck off right that's basically 
they're low down and it becomes it can it becomes codependent i mean i've been in this situation the t- the two roommates i mentioned just 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 previously um it became like that with the three of us you right. know we were we were um it was we were too cool for everybody else and not, like i said I, I i coined the phrase friends at a necessity because it's almost like none of your other friends could kind of stand you the way that these other two could sure it's be- yeah. because you have the dynamic of living together it's kind of like you it's a warts and all kind of thing yeah. you see your roommate like you see Ewan McGregor walking in, walking yeah. around in a robe with no pants on, and just well, a pair and you of jo- see her topless. She walks right up to she, Alex. She yeah. just yeah, she opens Casual the door and is just like uh huh. So right, so like it's yeah. And there is a thing between. The, I mean, it's there's all sorts of nuances going on with these three characters that I'm sure was established over time when they lived together and when they rehearsed, uh, you know, and when Danny Danny Boyle would talk to them about their subtexts and whatnot. So, yeah. So Danny Boyle was, um, this was his theatrical debut. He had it, he was, um, a very proficient in directing theater and he had done some, um, TV movies, but this was the first time that he was doing a theatrical project. Okay. Similar and, to you, to Yoon, actually. Yeah. Yeah. This was, uh, Ewan McGregor's, uh, first feature. Film. Yeah. Feature film. And feature film. So th- this movie really put them on the map. But Danny Boyle was talking about how the most important thing that he knew to really make an impact with a feature debut was a good script. And he read the script to Shallow Grave, and it was um, it was basically just dialogue. There wasn't a lot of stage direction, and the the, the dialogue between the characters is what really kind of cements our view of their relationship because it's very it's very natural they're not the most likable people but the dialogue between the three of them is so natural it's like okay this is the way three people that live together would actually interact with one another yeah you know yes yes and you keep this this is the hook in i think is you keep learning more about them individually and uh, about their relationships with each other, their relationship with each other, throughout everything, throughout right. throughout the dialogue, throughout the nuances. Um, and that's kind of what keeps drawing you in. Is like, oh, you're seeing more and more and more of these people, whether they're likable or not. You're getting to know them, and it's done in such a way where it's intriguing to get to know them. Right. And it's interesting. It's... Um it's almost like, and I just thought about this now, it's almost as an audience, you're being interviewed at the very beginning like a yeah, potential flatmate. Actually, that's a really good point. It's a really good point. Puts the viewer already, uh, intentionally distancing the viewer from them. You yes. know, it's almost a challenge. Right. You're not going to like us, but you're in, you know, unless you get up and walk out now, yeah. you know, or at some point, like, we're going to draw you in whether you like us or not. Yeah. And yeah, we made the um, I made the comparison. It was like, well, the characters aren't likable. And I said, well, what's the most popular sitcom from the '90s? And it was Seinfeld. And none of those characters, if you really think about it, that's unlikable. It. And that's it's that's intentional too. We did discuss yes. this before recording. Um, that is intentional. That was their premise to begin with. But because of the but the the way Seinfeld succeeded is because it's so funny because of the dialogue. Because Seinfeld's not an action base, it's dialogue that draws you in, whether you like the characters or not. And there's a little bit of 
this in all of us. There's Absolutely. A, yeah, yes. we all have this little snarky side that doesn't that really wants to flip the bird to the rest of the world. I would say that we even, all have it. Even the most masculine, manly man has a little bitchy queen inside of them. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? It's funny. It's like I want to argue that. Uh, but I, I don't think I can. <laughs> you know, and I, I'm not saying that to be derogatory. I'm just saying. Just it's like, funny. <laughs> it's funny. You know, uh, that's a really funny statement, Chris. I love it. I love it. So, I mean, and that's the thing. Like, we meet these characters through a montage of them basically, play, like, it's a mind game with yeah. them. Um, we get the sense that. Because they're three professionals, they don't really necessarily need a fourth flatmate. They don't really, right. but they're kind of like, oh, it'd be you know, be more money, right? If you know, it's just like, right? If we so, find- there's already this little bit of greed, even just having like an extra rent, you know, right. roommate, having that extra rent coming in. You would, you know, that's a, that's less money that I have to pay if we find if we find someone that we dub. Uh, to be part of our little collective here. Yes, yes. You, uh, if you pass the test. Yes. If you pass the dinner. So initially, Hugo is interviewed by Juliet. He's not intimidated by her by the least at at all. No, at all. And she's and she reacts to that. She likes that. She likes that because I think she's used to men um, being kind of, pawns in her yeah. <laughs> her game. Yeah. Or and he doesn't seem particularly. He comes in. He's got the same attitude. He's like, I don't necessarily need this room. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or you guys. Or you guys. Yeah. And so like he's got the right so attitude. Turning the tables at yeah. the dinner table. Yeah. Basically on them. And then, you know, he flashes the big wad of money and you and McGregor smell, smells like the real thing. He sniffs it, doesn't yeah, he? Yeah. <laughs> so Hugo, which is interesting, is our is our as an audience member, is our entry into this little world with these three. Mm-hmm. And um similar to the way Psycho kills off Janet Lee in the first act, and then we're kinda left with you're kind of left in that movie with Psycho. You're kind of left like, oh, okay. What's going to happen now? So am I we supposed- just lost a major star. I've been following, yeah, I've been following her for the last 20, 20 minutes. Yeah. In what- Psycho, it's her movie until she dies. Right. And um, it, it, it's th- this trope, if you want to call it a trope, or this kind of like uh, plot device has been used many times since then uh it was used with in scream as you mentioned with, with drew, drew barrymore. barrymore um it was used in uh brian de palma's dress to kill why who dies i can't remember it's it's almost beginning. like it's it's I, I can't remember the actress's name but we're following her story angie dickinson yeah that's we're, right we're and following she's a big star we're following her story basically yeah. for the first 20 minutes, 30 minutes, just like we're following Janet Lee in Psycho. Right. And then all of a sudden, you know, just like in Psycho, Angie Dickinson yeah. dies and we're kind of left with the uh, the aftermath of that. Yeah. Um, but it, 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 one, once we covered De Palma again, we can talk about all the Hitchcock influences. There's, I mean, there's numerous. But speaking of Hitchcock and speaking of 
shallow grave. This movie, and um, the way that it's written is very much like a play. It's it's mm-hmm. it could have and it. I believe I can't confirm or deny this, but Danny Boyle mentions on the commentary that there is a. Uh, a stage production of Shallow Grave. That that came after the movie. That came after the movie. And the way, if having watched the movie, it lends itself very, it would lend itself very well to a theater production. Sure. Because you would have 80% of it take place in a flat with these three, you only have three characters, three main characters, and most of their interactions, even with other characters, we have the police investigators come in, but, you know, most of their interactions are in this flat. Mm-hmm. So it lends itself very well to a, a, a theater production. And I had made the uh, comparison to Alfred Hitchcock's Rope, which takes place entirely in one apartment. Which was a play back in the 30s before he adapted it in the 50s for a film. Which is... Um, you know, also is uh, a great movie. If you haven't seen it, check out mm-hmm. uh, Hitchcock's Rope. But it, it pretty much is watching a, a stage production. Mm-hmm. We have one set. It's an apartment, and we have a dead body, and we have two people that have killed this person just having a dinner party. Mm-hmm. And um, they're just doing it for kicks. Just doing it for kicks. And that's the pretty much the only comparison that I can make to Shallow Grave is that we have three characters. Um, but they don't. They haven't killed. No, they haven't. they haven't. This is this is purely accidental. They discover the body after they are smelling. I think. A I don't think they smelled it yet. Okay. But they just he hasn't. So he has, he's been in his room. What, yeah. What's he doing in his room? His car is still out there. Yeah. yeah. We haven't heard or seen Hugo in a while. Yeah. So they so. try to wake him up. They try to talk to him through the door, through the window window right. above the door. And they finally break down the door, and there he is. Stark naked, yeah, frontal nudity, and dead, dead as a doornail. And um, apparently, Keith Allen was extremely eager to be naked and dead. <laughs> oh, like like Cloris Leachman and Bad Santa, huh? <laughs> Do I get to be naked? Saying, Do I please? <laughs> Danny Boyle I saying, you know, most I love you know, most actors or actresses they ask for a closed set. And um, when they're doing, if there's a there's a nude scene to be done, you know they don't want they want as little eyes as possible. And Keith Allen was like, "Oh, please, bring as yeah. many, <laughs> bring an audience, bring, bring your friends, bring your bring the kids." I'm gonna be. Ewan <laughs> McGregor actually then ended up doing many nude scenes after uh, Shallow Grave. He was actually into it, and he would say it in in uh, interviews, like, "Yeah, I I got pack it. I'm packing." I like to show it off. I think he referred to it as his lightsaber, actually, at one point. Yeah, during an interview. Oh, uh, Obi Wan. <laughs> so, yeah, yes, love so the exhibitionism. So we, yeah, so we've got uh, Obi Wan Kenobi, uh, Ewan McGregor, mm-hmm. and we have one of the doctors from Doctor Who in yeah. the same movie. What so. more could you ask for? No, no. It's, <laughs> um. So, yeah, this movie it was shot over the course of thirty days. Um, pretty cool that they wrapped it up in that you know. Well, they one had month. they had a very tight budget, and um, so basically the two million dollars averages to a, about one million pounds, and it's interesting because the million pounds that um, that 
he, is Hugo the name of the character or the actor? I I always Hugo's do the name this. of the character. Keith Thank Allen so was the actor. Thank you so much. Who I'm, has the, I'm so bad the, at this. The briefcase full of money. Let me let me draw up my cast list. Okay. Okay. So Hugo, yeah. So Hugo has a million doll, a million pounds. Right. And that they discover after they discover his corpse, his body, and that is and a they, legit. One million pounds, and that's... They rented, they actually, Danny Boyle actually rented a million pounds for a thousand pounds, which is a good deal, and so it's funny, it's like the budget for the movie was actually rented as a set piece, as a prop, you know, for for the plot, for the actual flick. And I think it's, it it was such an interesting, he makes a note that this was um, a very interesting decision to to make, you know... But well, I we think have res- shots. We have shots of all three of them actually just looking at the money and reacting, you know, to seeing all that money. And of course, you know, you don't really have to act if it's real. No, and you're I think, looking at a million pounds. So that really resonates as an audience member. It's like, okay, the, like you're looking at. Imagine if someone came up to you with a brief. Look what I found: a briefcase full of legit a million dollars. Or it'd be $2 million, really. I mean, to look at a million dollars in $100 bills and all these stacks of money, so it really resonates as an audience member. It would be one thing, to like, if it was a bank account. like they Right, um, with a number. Yeah, Yeah. the account number. Like, look, I found this... I found this uh, (laughs) ATM... I found this bank slip. Yeah, I found this ATM slip. Look how much money he has. <laughs> it is different. Right. But of course, you know, he's a, he's a, he's a criminal. So, you know, it's going to be... It makes sense that but it's hard cash. You know, so I think they only realize that he is a criminal after they find the money. They they really don't know anything about him. Right. Um, yeah. But... So I will I will say this: If you are an up and coming filmmaker, if you're an independent filmmaker, if you're thinking about making your first independent movie, watch Shallow Grave again, then watch Shallow Grave with a Danny Boyle commentary, and he basically will give you a crash course in film school about how to make a million dollar movie look like three million dollars. Okay. Or um, just the little choices that he made. Something like deciding to spend $1,000 for one day of renting a million dollars. Because he knows that it was going to resonate. And you could see you could see the glee on the actors' faces. Like kind of, especially Ewan McGregor, looking at this money. He's like drooling. Yeah. <laughs> and... He he kind of utilizes this realism to get these actual um, reactions from his actors. Mm-hmm. He rented a legit million dollars, so you get this natural reaction from them. When they're carrying the body of Hugo down the stairs, it would have been very easy just to wrap up whatever, you know, a mannequin that weighs, what, 10, 15 pounds? But no, they wrapped up a a full-size crash test dummy with a realistic body weight. So we have And they're and they're fumbling with that body all the way down that enormous spiral staircase. Right? 
which also reminds me of Sorry Wrong Number, actually. In Sorry Wrong Number, she's at the top of the building, and she's got a huge spiral staircase really? going okay. all the way down. Yeah. So he knows how to get these reactions. Um, <laughs> the grave that is dug for Hugo was actually dug by Ewan McGregor. Jeez. So he said, so you get the realistic exhaustion on his face, all the realistic sweat, the frustration that he has, uh, is because he actually dug that grave. Mm-hmm. And the, um, the, he, so he has, you know, for a first time theatrical director, he already kind of knows how to get like really good performances out of, out of people and mm-hmm. I can't talk enough about this movie could have easily fallen apart with the wrong cast because we spend so much time with these three people but they all give such incredible performances they really do and you see how it all devolves between the three of them I think you I think you mentioned that um the only complaint that you really had was that David's care David the character of David, um, played by Christopher, uh, his descent was a little too fast for your liking into his psychosis, basically. Yeah, but I got to rectify and change oh, that. Okay, um, go ahead. Because it didn't bother me, I, and I, I saw see I what, saw it rumbling underneath you know all the time. Upon second, uh, I had seen this movie a couple times, but upon viewing it with you. Um, for, for whatever reason, I thought his little descent to madness was a little too quick. But watching it again today with the commentary, I realized I didn't. I I had to. I put myself into his shoes psychologically and realizing that he was the one that dismembered this body. He was the oh, one. Oh yeah, that, that was a big part I, of it. That was a big part. He changed. He was not the same after no. that. He has to because and he has was, to cut. He has to saw off the hands and the feet and the feet as well and beat the teeth and at, bludgeon and beat the beat the teeth out. Does he yes. bludgeon the face? Of, yes, beyond recognize, recognizability. Pretty much, but they I mean, had to get re- and he doesn't want to do it. He does not. No. Does not. Does not. And he ends up doing it. And it changes him pretty much forever. Yeah. And there was just one line of dialogue that it really resonated with me. We were watching it today. Is um, he's having a conversation with Alex, who's kind of minimizing what they did, and his he just responds with, "Well, you didn't cut his feet off." Yeah. And then I was just like, that, "So that click." Yeah. That was the click of like, okay, I get it now. Like before, I was like, "Oh, this seems a little rushed." But for whatever reason today, that line just was like the click that I needed. I'd be like, I get it now. I get it. I get why this guy is so paranoid. I get why he becomes the way that he does. He was... Of, of the It th- reminds me... Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, say, of the three, he's the most grounded and probably the most likable. Alex is like a straight-up sarcastic smartass which i can relate to because that's that would be if i had to relate to a character unfortunately good or bad i would have to relate with alex juliet she's very manipulative yes but she's um she's got more of a she's got more of a moral standard than than alex does and david seems to be the most straight-laced of the three 
just real quick before we get off it, uh, another Ewan McGregor film he did for uh, for Woody Allen called Cassandra's Dream with uh, Colin Farrell. And in that movie, they play brothers who commit a murder. And it's Colin Farrell's character that can't keep it together. And you see him start to unravel, unravel, and oh, unravel okay. until, until basically disaster. Uh, and so it's similar in that respect, where the one one of the people involved in the murder, uh, with you know, where that murder was done not alone, but with someone else or with other people, and that one person just can't handle it. And in right. this case, it's David. So yeah, that was initially my my criticism, but like I said, upon the viewing today, I'm like, you know what, I get it now. Um, for yep. whatever reason, it kind of washed over me. Okay. <laughs> upon uh, previous viewings. Okay. And I always thought, well, this seems like it's a bit rushed. Would this guy really go that crazy? I'm like, you know what? what rewatching the scenes and watching him, he you see, you don't see the body. You just see him sawing and throwing up. He's getting physically ill. It's what, it's, what he's doing. It's hideous. And so, like to me, it, it's just something happened today where it all clicked, and I was just like, you know what? Put I had I put myself into right? his shoes. Yeah, and I think it was because think about it. I think previously I'd always put myself into Alex's shoes because I, I'm you a very sarca- sarcastic, mm-hmm. smartass kind of person. It would be very snarky and kind of think of. <laughs> think of myself better than I actually was thinking myself that I was, you know, if I was a journalist, I would think that I was a hotshot journalist and uh, he's, he's well, a tabloid. It's, <laughs> it's, it's funny. It's, it is funny because, uh, at one point, um, she does say to him, uh, Juliet does say to him that he's the smarter one out of the two guys. And you don't know if she's just saying that to like, you know, boost his ego for that moment you know to she being, totally being, is well oh, she but totally in the is. end who really was the smartest one he was alex was he yeah. really was we, we, he it, hid the money i mean let's just say it. he hid the money under the floorboards like tails hail heart <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> and what one of the things that one of the lines that like he says that just makes me think that this guy is not the brightest is he says no, i'm not scared i might be a bit terrified I'm like, oh, I think that's a pretty smart thing to say. I think that's funny. And <laughs> I think I th- I think that it's something that I would say and then later regret at like two in the morning lying in bed. No, like, really, just say that. That I loved that. I okay. thought about that drawing just the other day. I'm, I'm going to start saying that. I'm not. I'm not really scared. I might be a little terrified, but I'm not. I'm not scared. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so all right, all right, but um, yeah, but I mean, and. and these three are just like they're pitch perfect and you could tell that they spent a they had rehearsal time of a week where they the three of them and Danny Boyle lived in a flat together and interacted and you can kind of tell that like you know it was kind of it's like an intensive acting boot camp mm-hmm. because like you kind of you you even just a week of living with somebody like if you've never lived with like a pretty much a stranger mm-hmm. <laughs> you're gonna get to know you're gonna get to know mornings especially oh mornings more, if yeah. you're if you yeah if you <laughs> if you are waking up together in the same apartment flat whatever 
you're gonna know each other on a different level. You just are. How you wake up, your your morning routine, how you prepare for a day of the you know of your life in this world. And then yeah, exactly. (laughs) And then when you know, so this was before cell phones. So they have the one landline. You're gonna have. You're gonna know. Oh, it's three in the afternoon. That's somebody calling for so-and-so. Yeah. And, and in this case, it's usually a guy calling for Juliet, one of her guys. One of her guys. And Alex is usually the one t- uh, who is uh, uh, sent to answer the phone and tell the guy that she's not home. Yeah. That's kind of his his job. Yeah. He's, because, you know, he must keep very... He, you know, I would imagine a journalist probably keeps... M- interesting hours very kind of a a, a chaotic schedule that the, whatever sure. piece you're working on kind of dictates your schedule you sure so, you know um it, it seems to me that um although we do, don't see that much of it we no, don't we, see that I much of him like working we no, see we, more of the other two working we do. than him was, until, until he's the, sent to cover the case right. Of the people that they've killed. <laughs> Which li- I think one of the funniest moments of this movie is um, the editor talking to Alex, saying, three bodies found mutilated, you know, shallow grave, like no discernible, like hands and feet missing. And Alex's response is, I don't know anything about it. <laughs> and the editor's just like, of course you don't. Right, 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 right. <laughs> Why would you? <laughs> but then but then he does, Alex does keep drawing attention to himself and the situation by leaving leaving the uh, the conference. Press conference the, pe- yeah. the press conference. That's right. He can't handle it. And the way he leaves is pretty suspicious. Yeah. You know, he can't stand it. He's got to get out of there. Also, when he's talking to the detectives and they, they play a trick on him, they're saying, well, uh, something to the effect of what if the... Would what it if, surprise you to know that the, the, the car is still outside? Yeah, of the dead person. Yeah. And he'd be like, uh, yes, it would. And then he said, and then there's silence and he's like, well, is it? Yeah. And they're like, no. No. <laughs> so that was another little giveaway. Yeah. And that's when they're all starting to talk and he's, you know, I think Alex is saying they know. They know when he was saying before that they don't know, they don't know. No one can really pin anything on us. And then he starts feeling the heat. We get I think this this movie has like the perfect three act structure going Mm -hmm. on. We have this first act where we get to know these obnoxious, naughty Mm -hmm. flatmates. Mm -hmm. We have the introduction of the fourth flatmate, Mm -hmm. which leads to the second act of uh, we have a dead flatmate. Mm -hmm. Let's call the police. No, but wait, look at this. We got money. Look yeah. at all this money. Call and, the they don't, and they don't think, of, well, not that it would have made that much difference in the end, but they don't think about, you know, reporting the corpse to the police and hiding the money. Right. I don't think it would have panned out very well in any way. Like, no, eventually, eventually those two guys, those two bounty hunters or whatever, come looking for uh, Hugo. Hugo. And so they're going to find them regardless. They're, gonna, they're after that money. Right. Yeah, so we don't, they don't know that uh, Hugo has apparently, probably ripped, no, not apparently, has definitely ripped off some, uh, some, some uh, higher ups in a, in a drug dealing operation or some sort of oh, yeah, mob sure. gang sure. operation. That's why because he's we like have, trying to live on the slide, get away, yeah. shack up with these other just, kids, basically. Yeah, yeah, I mean, who would think to look with, 
for me with an accountant, a doctor, and a tabloid journalist. Yeah. It's just kind of like, it's almost like the basis for a sitcom. <laughs> the accountant, the tabloid journalist, and you know, the, the medical doctor. The set, the set looks like a sitcom. It looks like a Friends so episode. The, um, yes. So the majority of this budget was was uh, spent designing this very elaborate flat, which is kind of like a heightened version of of what an actual flat would be like. It's it's big. It's huge. It's huge. And going back to Friends, it's like... the Bigger apartment. Than theirs. Well, that's the thing that always bothered me about Friends. I'm like, could they really... Oh, it's always like that, though. It's always like that on yeah, TV I, and I know. Yeah. So, like, yeah. No, you can't afford that. You're a nurse? Excuse me? What? You? This place is enormous. No. Yeah. <laughs> so we got a very heightened flat that is just like... Seems to be like... Every young professional's dream. Yeah, and the way that it's painted, especially the colors. I keep making, I keep making notes, uh, s- saying things about the colors in the apartment. It looks like an Almodovar movie, the way that it's done, or Pee Wee's Playhouse. Just the bright, co- it's these bright pastel mm-hmm. colors. And I was saying, um, the bright colors, especially the bright red, the bright red blood towards the end is very Argento esque. Yep. Um, yep, and so the color scheme, the uh, production designer's name is Kave Quinn, and um, sh- she's done production design for for lots of projects and uh, lots of projects with Danny Boyle. But she, I wonder if she has her roots in theater too. Possible. Okay, go um, ahead. But she, the flat is designed to be very bright and colorful because they wanted to kind of break the norm of the grim British kind of crime thriller look. Okay. That's kind of very it dark. Is a, it is a juxtaposition visually with they what's wa- going on. Yeah. They wanted, they made a conscious, and again, this is a, something to note for young filmmakers. Danny Boyle consciously, at, at while embracing his British roots and embracing the Scottish influences of the screenplay because John Hodges is a Scotsman mm-hmm. as is Ewan McGregor but Danny Boyle and I believe the other two Kerry Fox and Christopher Eccleston were British okay uh, while embracing some of the norms of British cinema wanted to make a very uniquely kind of anti-British movie okay. by making it a little bit more colorful by making it more of a kind of a heightened reality. Mm-hmm. It's, well, it's almost American in that sense. Yes, but he also wanted to make sure that uh, it didn't get too Americanized. Yeah. Why none of the violence involves guns, which would be kind of commonplace, you think. For, you bet. It, yeah, for American cinema. Instead, it's tools. Yeah. Basically. So we got a very uh, we get a very primal kind of violence yep. going on here. Which is kind of his trade trade is it his trademark? I guess I'm I don't know Danny Boyle's work that much. I'm not a big fan of, of Danny Boyle and I actually am not for all work intents and purposes we're getting into it, but I'm I wasn't a big fan of Shallow Grave when I first saw it. I saw it on uh, video or DVD shortly after its release. And then I did see Train Spotting in the theaters after that. That might be the only works that I've seen of his. 
Um, no, because we discussed how bad a life less ordinary is. I did see a life less ordinary. <laughs> oh, my heavens. How you could but go we, from something so so well done to something so badly. But That you, was him trying to do an American movie. He shouldn't have done that. They And neither should have Yoon. Uh, well, he's done a lot of American movies, so I have to retract that. <laughs> but I mean, this t- yeah, let's not get too too much off on a life less ordinary. But that is a you real like blip days on later. The, I love twenty eight okay, days later. So you do. And like, did he do twenty eight weeks later he too? He did not. Okay, I love both of those. Uh, so yes, you're right. Twenty eight day, days later is excellent, and there is still that grittiness. He does not shy away from this type of violence that is like. Uh, primal and in your face, and, and it's not—it's it's visceral. Yes. It's visceral, and ha- it has to do with usually using your hands, even yes. if it's with a tool. The, the clim- it's not pulling a trigger. No, the it's climax not. of Twenty Eight Days Later, which it's funny because it's commonly referred to as a zombie movie. The the climax of that movie is it doesn't have zombies in it. It's basically these survivors fighting these military people. Oh, that's right. right. That's right. Yeah, that's right. But the climax is is very intense. Like one on one violence, um, almost like going to battle, like you know, uh, you know, it's before like guns. a boxing match, sure. you know, like okay. or just like a street fight, like whatever you got around you. Yeah. that's what or, you're gonna use. Yeah. for. I was even thinking gladiator stuff along those lines. Yeah, sure, yeah. but um, yeah, he was never. I, I, I haven't seen all of his movies. Thinking back, I, I don't remember anything with very big action set pieces with like machine guns yeah, going. I don't think he's like that. interested in that. In no, the I don't slightest. think he is. Which in is the slightest. Which is why I think that something like the climax of Twenty Eight Days Later and the the violent climax of Shallow Grave is so. It sticks with you so much because the the violence is not carried throughout this movie. It's kind of like it all leads up to this. Yeah. Um, the very end is just, it's just brutal. And you really feel it. These characters, once again, whether you like them or not, you've gotten to know them. Perhaps you've gotten to care for them even just a little bit. But they have turned into monsters, you know. I mean, especially... Especially David. Especially David and even Juliet. I mean, she makes she makes a very conscious decision to sleep with him and become... Uh, partners with him, and I think it's a, it's a survival tactic or yep. it's a manipulation tactic on her part. Uh, so she's starting to go, on, you know, she's starting to venture to the other side. Basically, Alex notices this as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, I should I should I should note that Alex is the only one of the three who doesn't kill anybody. No, he doesn't. The other two end up do. She ends up killing David. She kills David mm-hmm. right through the throat. Yep. Right through the throat. She stabs him right through the throat. David kills the two thugs. That's right. And, um... I guess that's it. Yeah. yeah. There's not a, you know, it's not a very violent movie. But but, but it stays with you. The way what, that the the way that the deaths occur. And the yeah. violence occurs. I mean, even when the two thugs come in and, like, uh, you know, fuck up um, Juliet and Alex, it's, uh, it's brutal. So, it's brutal. And I think that it's kind of... And thinking back now, um, Danny Boyle says that his big influences for the movies was the Coen Brothers, particularly Blood Simple, right? Which I, we which we did an episode for. We shall we do sh- it again at some point. We shall um, but because the, it was never released. <laughs> was well, it no, was, no offense, Travis, if you're listening. Um, <laughs> but um, the climax of Blood Simple is very. It's almost. It, it's very similar to the climax of Shallow Grave. 
we we don't have it's yeah. not three flatmates, but, but there are have, guns. Yeah, there are, we have we have three people, um, yeah. kind of uh, dueling it out at the end. Yeah. Um, so the influences were Blood Simple, which we see, and um, Goodfellas, which I mean we have the, the digging of the grave in the in the in the middle of the night, mm-hmm. lit only by headlights, is mm-hmm. very reminiscent of Goodfellas, mm-hmm. and. Um, also, David Cronenberg. David Cronenberg was the influence for David's glasses. They oh. had seen a picture of David Cronenberg who was wearing, and I can almost picture that the the, the, the very circular yeah. uh, frames. Yeah. Um. So he was the influence for uh, the glasses, and interestingly, Danny Boyle didn't mention it in the commentary, but the scene with the screwdriver to the forehead, the drill. Is straight up from scanners. If you oh seen. okay, um, okay, you mentioned that you mentioned that when we were watching it, right? Um, right. One of the guys in the original scanners disregard any of the sequels to scanners, please. So we'll just stick with the original David Cronenberg scanners. Uh, he t- actually dr- tried to drill into his own head to kind of l- release the demons of his telekinetic powers, but he's got the scar. Throughout the entire movie, who you and or or are you talking about in from scanners? scanners. Yeah, oh, he guy, he carries that with yeah, him through yeah. the whole thing. I don't know if I've seen all the scanners. Okay, we'll get to it at, sure. at, some, at one point. But um, yeah, the drill to the head scene is 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 very very is very Cronenberg scanners esque. Okay. So um, but Danny Boyle again, if if you're interested at all in filmmaking, that I cannot recommend this commentary enough as someone that um. Willingly or unwillingly watches movies with the commentaries for this show. Uh, sometimes it's a chore to get through, but listening to someone like Danny Boyle, kind of like when this commentary was released, I, I'm not, I don't believe that he's he had won the Academy Award yet, but he had established himself well enough. But he is not a pretentious person talking about his movies. He's a very realistic, very. Um, he's not a James Cameron. No, and he's looking back at his movies, and he talks about what works, what doesn't, what didn't work for him. And uh, thankfully, he wasn't a. <laughs> just go back to the Abel Ferrara bad lieutenant commentary, where he can't remember aspects of the movie due to his drug use. What really? Danny Boyle says that about his. No, no, no. Shall- I can't think about that. Abel Ferrara not being able to remember about Bad Lieutenant. <laughs> no, Danny Boyle was very, you know, he was a very uh, clean cut person. So he remember he remembers he remembers the details of making this movie very. So he's able to. I'm sorry, I can't get past that. Doing a commentary and being like, you know, I I can't remember what I did with this scene because I was, I, I was on drugs. <laughs> well, no, he. <laughs> Yeah, the bet. So, if you want the counterpoint to a very in- listen to the bad lieutenant commentary, because thankfully, uh, it's either I believe it's the cinematographer who's or one of the producers who does the commentary with Abel Ferrara, who's able to fill in the gaps <laughs> and correct Mr. Ferrara about things that simply did not happen. Um, <laughs> Danny Boyle, on the other hand, um, clear-minded, uh, clearly was not. And offering his secrets. That's yeah. pretty cool. He, offering his secrets for his first feature. I mean, you know, you, you know, for the filmmaker who, who is able to secure a million 
dollars or two million dollars for a film sure this is great but i mean still like for for danny boyle to kind of reveal all of that his whole process and offer that information to someone else and you know so he's so gracious to not only the cast because he talks about what an incredible cast oh those three were fantastic top notch unbelievable professionalism unbelievable performances so devoted to it and and like i said i think with without the cast like he couldn't have asked for three better leads Um, i agree but he's he's so gracious he makes sure to, to shout out he realizes halfway through the commentary that he had not mentioned mr mashahiro hirakobo as the there's the editor, um, and he makes a special note to comment on the great editing because he says, "Of you know, I feel bad because of all the people that worked on this movie. He's probably the only one that's going to listen to this commentary. So <laughs> I'm sorry because he, he's praising the, the production designers, praising the actors. He, but halfway through, he realizes he, he's talking about some of the editing choices, and he talks about meeting. Uh, Mesh's hero, and the, he, but he's he's just so complimentary, and like you said, he lets you in on the secrets. He does, and then he, and, yeah. And I just want to make a note before sure. I forget about it. Makes a very interesting um, comment about the cinematography of Brian Tafano, who he he said that I this movie would not look nearly as good as it did if I did not ha- like the because Tafano was had familiar was familiar with shooting an, a feature film. Okay, good. So he talks about it, and one of the things that he brings up, he goes, and it, I didn't real. he goes, this is how good that Tafano is, is that he lights, he lit a lot of the characters, and, and Danny, this is Danny Boyle talking, that he didn't even realize until uh, uh, years down the road, re-watching the movie, that he he lit the main characters so that there's a ping in their eyes and that he said, you know, eyeways are the gateways to the soul, but the three main characters, Tafano lit them and in such a way that they have brittle eyes. Brittle? Brittle. What, is, I don't, what, what like, does that mean? I mean, like, I know what that means, but... I, just like, just like there's nothing going on, like, like the morality, the soul has been sucked out of them. How do you do that? How do you light someone that way? He makes the, I'm just, I'm just relaying information. <laughs> That's very interesting. What I did notice, and I mentioned this to you before, is that all three of them have this, uh, gorgeous strawberry blonde hair. Yes. That is, that is made, uh, that is given maximum effect with the lighting. Right. You see, it shines, all three of them, their hair. And I think it's interesting that all three, I, I think it just kind of leads to this, it helps with the commod, commodity. Uh, Commodery, sure. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, that this, they're kind of like a gang. And like you said, yeah. it's almost like two brothers and a sister. Yeah. There's a siblingness going on and the way they bicker too is yeah. very much like siblings. And um so to watch these three people just like they have their morals and their sanity stripped away slowly. Yeah. Um I mean they didn't yeah. They didn't have that yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The absolutely. The, the little bit of morals yeah. that they had. I mean it's not that they're that amoral. I no. mean they you know, they're 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 immature. No, in their in a lot yeah. of their thinking, regardless of how uh, well established they are, or how smart they are, there's a lot of immaturity going on. So they don't. Right. Need, there's a lot of kind of like not really knowing 
what they're doing when they're doing what they're doing, especially with the money. They have right. no idea that this is a bad idea, that people are going to be coming for them, you know, yeah. that this is stolen money. It isn't, it, they don't really think it out. They it's don't think very, it out. It's a very gut reaction. Yeah. And initial, I mean, but it's it's Alex that eventually convinces the two of them that it's a good idea. Yeah. Juliet's, she's already on the phone to the police. Yeah. And if it and wasn't, David is very hesitant, very right. very hesitant. He does not. I mean, he's an accountant. He's not, and he wants to. He wants to hide the money. And I think I think that's a good idea, right? You know, but I he mean, makes, they, he has. I a, don't know. It's like he is. He's also the two. He's also the one that kills the thugs, right? I mean, so he saves. He saves their lives in a way. Yeah, you know, inadvertently. They, they probably were all three going to be killed. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They're not going to be... No, because uh, th- yeah. uh, those two thugs had killed two people to get to the where yeah. they were now. Yep. Um, and they put a they put a plastic... They put plastic bags over Alex and I think Juliet as well um, over their she, heads. Over she's their heads. bound... Yeah. yeah. No, uh, there's not a bag over her head. The there's something are, over her head. Is there? Yeah, they okay. they do something. But, um, yeah, and, and he... Just viciously, without a second thought, just kills these two thugs. He's become and drops them from the attic. Drops, drops them from the the, from loft. the loft. Yeah, I mean thud, thud, in front of the other two. Yeah, I mean I kind of loved it <laughs> because we see these thugs do some pretty uh, brutal stuff to the well, yeah. Other two. We see them yeah. um, to the... drown one guy for information. Yeah, brutally, and, and then leave another guy to to die freeze in a to freeze. death. Yeah, yeah, to naked die in, in a freezer. freezer. Um, I mean, this stuff, this stuff, I hate, this is one of the things why I am careful about the movies that I watch, and it's probably the reason why I didn't like Shallow Grave to begin with, and when I saw it the first time, and I didn't really care for it this time, too, is that kind of violence haunts me. It doesn't go away. I'll wake up, you know, I'll wake up in the middle of the night thinking about stuff like that. That's, so it's really difficult for me now to see stuff like that. Difficult for me to see Scorsese movies. Goodfellas did the same thing to me. Uh, So I've learned, finally, (laughs) in my old age, that uh, I have to be careful what kind of imagery I subject myself to. Sure. Yeah, yeah. But you, you, I, did you not like this movie this time around? Well, I liked it by the end, for some reason. And we'll talk about the very ending, the last two scenes. Because I don't... the, The scenes for the credit, the scene for the credits... And then the scene right before that with the with the knife in his shoulder. So I'm gonna, um, that kind of turned me around. I I'm, was able to say, okay, I I can say that I guess I liked this movie. Okay, but it's gonna, a difficult. It was a difficult. It's I'm a gonna, difficult movie for me to watch. I'm going to start a segment on the show called Chris reacts to Andrew watching the movie. Yeah, <laughs> because you you sat there, but you would also certain scenes. Do you remember getting? You would get up. Like physically, I, get- you're absolutely right. That's right. I was my face was I was standing, my fa- I was standing in front of the TV, my face inches away from the TV at that ending. With the all the shit goes down with the three of them. You, you're you, absolutely you right, got- especially with her and the decisions she, she was making. You know, um, I was. You're right. I was completely engrossed. Yes. Well, that, that's the sign of a good movie. I know. You're <laughs> if, right. If you get, what some, can I say? No, no. I'm just, I was just, I just wanted to see if you because, like, doesn't I mean said, I have to like it though. No, not at all. <laughs> but you're right. It, it, no, I mean, that is a all. sign of a good movie, and it had me. It had me. I'm not even so sure. I saw the ending the first time I saw okay. it. Okay. Yeah. 
So let's talk about the ending. Okay. Because there's a lot to talk about with this ending. Okay. More more than I initially thought. Okay. Because, so the climax of this movie is David has gone completely off the deep end. He's killed two, peop- two people. He's uh, dismembered. And I think it's interesting to see the first dismemberment scene compared to the second dismemberment scene. The first one is very intense. He, Grueling He is throwing up while sawing these body parts off. The second one, there's nothing there. He's just... Oh. He's just doing it. It's like mechanical. It's, it's become... It's almost like... Come some, to the dark side. We have cookies. Yeah. Yeah, yeah he's or, there. It's almost like someone that's done a job so many times that they could do it in their sleep. He's just like it's it's become ro- it's like robotic. Think about it, Chris. I mean, geez, when you think about it, I mean, there's so many movies with this type of scenario. But think about having that happen to you in real life. Think about having to commit a murder in real life and how that would change you. I mean, good God, just just from my you know, layman's experiences, you know, in, in life, things that have changed me and made me hardened. I can't even begin to imagine having something like that weighing on my conscience for the rest of my life. Well, let's keep in mind that prior to, I mean, to the murders... It is self-defense. I mean, he didn't yeah. do the first murder, and the second one is self-defense. It is self-defense. You know, but still. I mean, you know, he no, has well, been... He's a... He, He's probably the most sensitive out of the three. Absolutely. Yeah. And we see the... the. It's interesting. Um, I, I think the, the scene that kind of sums it up is the um, the scene in the hardware store. Uh, Alex, Ewan McGregor character, is kind of like giddy. He's like excited to be... He thinks he's in a movie. He even says yeah. that at one point, I think. Yeah, yeah. We're gonna need a spade. Well, he's like he when they find the when they find the body initially the the roommate's body when they find Hugo's body he says he says um this I we've just stumbled upon a story and Juliet yeah. says it's 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 not a story Alex yeah it's a corpse yeah to him Get real I I I think and it's interesting that the only person that we've seen that we're shown watching TV in this movie is Alex we're. And he loves it. He, he loves lo- it. He's he's talking along with his favorite game show. Yeah. He's watching The Wicker Man. Yeah. I mean his mentality it's a very it's it's a very poignant commentary on how television affects us. He's right. he's case in point right there. And, he loves his TV. Yeah, and he as every tabloid journalist would be. If this movie was made um Today he would be uh, he... on his phone. On well, would, no, go ahead, finish your sentence. Oh, he'd be working for TMZ. <laughs> God, I hate that. Oh, I ha- I had a roommate that used to watch TMZ. Good God Almighty! All right, let's not talk about Sorry. T- fuck TMZ. Sorry. <laughs> and what? But do I'm you just... know what that means? Do you know what TMZ means? No. It's, I think it's short for like thirty mile zone, which means like um, you can. Or three mile zone, like the I don't. I think the I think the I. You know what? Just edit this out. Never mind. Right. <laughs> there, it, it does stand for something that's very interesting. Okay. Yeah. Well, like you couldn't get close. You you couldn't get within three miles of a celebrity. Something to that used to be like an unwritten rule. Now it's not adhered to anymore. Okay. Yeah. Great. 
<laughs> so anyway, um, so the endings. So we have this. The climax is Juliet initially tries to manipulate Alex to get the money out of the loft from David. Um, she kind of she kind of builds him up. She goes, "Oh, but you're smarter than he is." Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and um, mm-hmm. when that doesn't work. She manipulated. It appears that David has had a, a long-standing crush on Juliet for quite some time. Um, he she, even, she decides to take advantage of that. Yeah, he, it's he, a conscious decision. He even refers to her as his girlfriend at one point. At, at his outburst well, at, at that, that party. At the party, yeah. Um, says you can't get near my girlfriend. You need to like message her. You know but, to message me five days in advance if you want to be, dance with my girlfriend at this party. Right, right. But, th- I mean, that's kind of a, a put-on that he's doing just yeah. to kind of, you know, demoralize this stranger as as they do. Right. Yeah. But um, And he does it very well. I think Alex congratulates him. Yeah. Like, I never well, saw this side of you, you know, type of thing. Something like the, you brought <laughs> brought out the man in you or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something like that. Um. Also, just a note on this this party, we do get a a bit of comeuppance from one of the uh, the flatmate applicants, just, Cameron, just fucking cold cocking Alex right in the face. Yeah, well deserved. <laughs> well deserved. Absolutely well deserved. Which leads to um, uh, is a very interesting scene where Juliet asks Alex if he's you know. You know, he's he just got punched in the face. He's feeling kind of down in the dumps. She's like, "Let's go spend some money." Right. And they go and buy a bunch of shit, stupid stuff, stupid, including shit. like a little toy robot that has a camera and roll. Uh, you know, drives around the apartment filming them. Yeah, they buy a camcorder, but and then, and, and that drives David crazy. That yes. drives David crazy. Yes, he's because... like, "How much did this cost?" And they tell him, and he's like, "No, no, no, no. How much?" They said, I think they say 500 pounds. Yeah. He's like, no, no, no. How much do That's, you think this piece of crap he cost said, to make? He, and you spent 500 not, pounds on it? Isn't that what he's saying? No. I thought that's what he was saying. No, he's saying something much more deeper. What? He's saying, that's how much you paid for it. How much did Is it, it going to cost, cost us? Yes. He's talking, he's not talking materialistically. What did this cost us? We... He, that's when he says he wants to hide the money. Yes. It's like, stop spending this cash. He, he realizes we covered up a crime. You know, we would have all been absolved of any sort of guilt. It was clearly a drug overdose that we'd just be like, listen, this guy's been living here for a couple weeks. He'd been missing for a couple days. We knocked the door down. This is what we found. He's saying, what What did this cost us? He's talking about what morally did this cost us? What psychologically did this cost us? And legally, because, I mean, I mean, legally, you know, we're doing you're you're doing all this high profile spending, right? You know, like, but psychologically, it didn't cost Julia and Alex as much as it cost David because he drew the shortest straw and had to be the one because they basically sever the the limbs, yes. the the extremities off the corpse. They decided to do because they all. They were all kind of hesitant about it. And they all, David and Alex kind of assumed Juliet would do it because she's a doctor. She's around dead people all the time, which is a bizarre assumption to make about someone, regardless. Well, I know, but I mean, you know, 
why didn't she do it? She is the most qualified. We're never actually told what kind of doctor she is, though. Yeah, but she works around corpses. You know that much. Yeah. You know? Maybe if she's an emergency room doctor, yeah. she would probably be, you know. Normal, yeah. So you know. she should have. I mean, if she had done it, how would things? How would that have changed things? It would have changed things. Right. It definitely would have changed things. David wouldn't have gone off the deep end. Right. Well, theoretically. Theoretically. Right. You know, ostensibly. Um, right. But, you know, that... That all leads to, and I think it's very, it's very poignant. Or in rewatching the movie today, so Juliet draws the first straw. David is is left to draw the second straw, and he almost his hand hovers around. Mm-hmm. Okay, the, the right, the, 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 the yeah, yeah, and he changes his mind at the last second, and he draws the short oh, straw, and that changes his fate yeah. forever. Um, so there's. And, and that just goes to, like, the style of this movie. It's, we're given glimpses of um, kind of the the style that Dan, uh, Danny Boyle would go on to utilize in, in, in movies. But you're given, like, these little, not to say that the movie, I'm going to say these, we're given little shots of genius filmmaking here and there. Um, just... It, interesting shot composites, interesting, just little stuff. The way that things are choreographed. Um, yeah, and to and to and to reference the editor and the uh, the cinematographer again, little little teeny tiny dream sequences, or are they dream sequences or not? Type of little images that you get. I'm thinking specifically of when Alex goes into the tank and the loft, the water tank and the loft, and retrieves the money and we find out at the end that he's replaced it yes uh but in you see that image and you don't you don't know is it a dream is it a moment right. what's he doing you can't put so, it together until the end there is one yeah and we're given one dream sequence where alex kind of comes up with the idea to hide the money in the floorboards where he's actually underneath the floor and a drill comes down through the floor and he's oh, right it right he's he awake. wakes up yeah yeah so we're yeah we're, that actually is a dream yes right so so that must be after he's done it no he, this, or he's that's when the thought comes into that's his head the, yes it came to okay. him in a dream okay and Ooh. yeah so he has switched out the money with uh with the tabloids saying three the, corpse the three yeah. corpse <laughs> because he comes home with a stack of that he's like have you seen the papers. Yeah. They're like, no, we saw it on the news. He's like, well, yeah. Yeah, but he's got a ton of it. So I wonder, that wasn't in his head when he was thinking, let me just buy a bunch of newspapers and I can, like, shred them and replace the money with them? No, because, well, I don't know. Why would he buy that many? He must have, yeah. Unless he wants to buy them all out of that, you know, the corner store. One of those things like, well, so they I don't, don't yeah, want any more attention brought upon this yeah, than I have to. Right, 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 right. <laughs> but, um, no, we, we do have a scene where it's weird because you just get this random scene where he's ripping the front page off. And it's almost like, what is he doing? Mm. Like, what is that going to do? And it, it all pays off at the end. It mm. turns out that he, uh, he switched all the money in the briefcase with this. And her reaction, I mean, we're jumping the gun a little bit. Did you want to get into the ending a little Let's bit more? Talk, yeah, because there's a lot to talk about the ending. Um, so go ahead. We'll try to keep this, uh, you know, beat by beat. beat. Beat by beat. So we have... Juliet has purchased a, 
a ticket to get. I forget where she's going. Uh, is it? Oh, it's somewhere fabulous. It's like yeah. it's not Reno. Re- Rio, um, Rio, Rio de Janeiro. Yeah, Rio so de Janeiro. yeah. So she's purchased a ticket to to fly to Rio. Uh, David is living in the loft and has drilled numerous holes all over the place to keep an eye on his roommates, spying on them, watching them as they sleep. Yeah, you don't really know if they know that he's doing that. I guess they know. And oh no, no, like they know acting. because there's a scene where Alex is lying on the couch after he got clubbed in the shins. Right, right. And he sees the drill come through. But you don't really see them uh, acting as if they're being watched after that. Even though they are being watched, they still kind of go about their business. I think Alex shows a little bit of paranoia. I think Juliet at this point has decided that she needs to manipulate David, so she's kind of like... She almost puts on a show for him. She does. She does. Uh, That's right. Walking from room to room. Right, because she actually puts on a little act as if she's going to work, and when he comes down the stairs, she's not. She hasn't left the flat. No. She's still there. And that's, I think, when she seduces him. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, yeah. So we have Juliet that uh, initially had tried to manipulate Alex to get the money from David, and when that didn't work, she decides... She, she kind of... I think she... Desperate. Just desperate. But she knows that, that he's, David has he's, always kind of had a thing for her. Yeah, and that he's not dependable anymore. His, he's, his, he's mentally cracking. Right. And uh, that if she had probably attempted to manipulate him for something lesser uh, a year previous to this story taking place, it probably wouldn't have worked. But his psyche is so fractured at this point. I'll bet she could have manipulated him a year beforehand. He seems to be that smitten on her. I don't know. I mean, but to leave Alex high and dry and yeah. then to run away with the money. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, 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 I think David probably would, wouldn't would have... Uh, I mean, if there wasn't a dismemberment and murder going on, I don't, you know, I don't think that... I think that those cracks in his psyche, she knows that... She's exploiting. Yeah. She's exploiting them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we have... David and Juliet that are uh, trying to leave in the middle of the night. Wait, no. David is trying to leave without her. He gets up and is leaving without her. That's right. And she catches him on the way out and she goes, oh, did you forget to wake me up? Yep. And I think he makes some comments like, no, I was gonna, I was just going to call for a cab and then I was going to wake you up and we were going to go. And Likely a- story. Alex is in the other room who is so guilt-ridden but already knows see this is this is interesting so he's guilt ridden so he's calling the police but he already knows that the money is safely yeah what's up with that yeah what's up with that that's interesting yeah i think that might be a plot hole <laughs> or not i mean i don't know i don't know how much we have to dig I don't know how we would dig into that yeah. and find our answers. It could be a plot hole. But he is. He's, he, he is calling the detective who gave him his card. And he's calling him. Is it in the middle of the night? So maybe his thought process and is. And he can't get through because it's the middle of the night. Right. So he, he doesn't know what David's up to. No. But he knows that he has hidden the money. So maybe he was going to try to. Um, get the cops to pick up David and hoping that David would either confess or Alex was going to tell them what David had done. For whatever reason, Alex is on the phone with the police. 
So, um... It doesn't really... Yeah, yeah but go on. Okay, yeah. Let's just go. I was gonna say, it doesn't... Now that I'm thinking about it, it doesn't really gel. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I... No mention during the commentary? No. Okay. Maybe... It yeah. is weird. It is weird, because... Because he comes in out... Hindsight, he does come out of the room, and when he sees David, he tells uh, Juliet, he says, he says, let him go. Yeah. Just let him go. But of course, he knows that that's not the real money. Yeah. So he, uh, he, he, I guess he was hoping that David would just. But at some point, David's going to realize that the, the money's not. Yeah. And then all hell could break loose. Right. He could come back and kill them both. Yeah. So let's not let's let's. let's... I mean, no, but this is this is yeah. worth talking about. This no, is it worth is, exploring yeah. a little bit. And I mean, it, it, you know, uh, this is this a note is... to the listeners that we this is not something that I real uh, kind of picked up on. It kind of yeah, the motivation well, doesn't isn't really. And and should the listener have any insight, feel free to contact us or yeah, feel free to contact Chris theories you know, um, on Twitter. On yeah, hit us up on Twitter if you yeah because th- there's. The ending to this, and we're going to talk about the very ending very soon. But the, the yeah, um, the motivation, David's motivation, uh, Alex's motivation for calling the police is kind of questionable now. Um, it's and it's that one, it's not just the police; it's that one detective who gave him his card. So we yeah. don't really know what what he wants to tell him. I'd be very curious to see. Uh, I think that the, if they had more time and a little bit more money, I think that. Alex is. I think there could have been something there. Another interesting kind of plot point could have been what Alex was going to tell the inspector. And it's not like. Okay, we can move on after this, but okay. it's not. It's not like there's any real uh, friendliness going on between the detective and Alex when he gives him his card. No. It's more kind of like. Yeah, if there's something you want to tell me, hint, 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 hint. Yeah. You feel like confessing, basically. Here's my card. So maybe, okay. So now I'm gonna play psychologist here. I'm gonna say that Alex's motivation is he kind of realizes that he's probably the prime suspect at this point due to him leaving that press conference. Mm-hmm. His, and having that slip up about the car. Having that slip up about the car. He's probably thinking that he could frame David. And I'm thinking that's probably what his thoughts are for when he's calling the police in the middle of the night. That he's going to kind of... Which is pretty ma- pretty malicious for his character. Right. If you think about it. Um, so anyway, okay. But we, can just, we can just leave yeah, that as I mean, is. the more we unravel this, there's it any could, number of possibilities. Right. It's, it's unclear. Yeah. So, but um, he comes out of his room. He sees David leaving. He sees Juliet in tow, or not in tow. She's trying to get him to turn around, and she says to he says to Juliet, "Let him go. Just let him go yeah. with the suitcase with full of money." He's and, and they're 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 kind of making like uncomfortable small talk. He's like, "Do you want me to forward your mail?" <laughs> right, right. <laughs> He's like. David's like, no, that's very kind of you. He's like, well, where are you well, going? He, right, goes, exactly. He he goes, goes, where would we forward your mail? He's like, well, where am I going? I'm not sure, but Juliet's going to Rio. Right. Cat the, out of the bag. And he pulls the ticket out. Alex And, and says, Alex takes credit for buying He says, ticket. it was my idea. Yeah. Because things are getting really ugly. They're getting very tense. Very tense. Very, very tense. And so Alex does save the situation, save the moment. By saying, I'm the one that bought the ticket. I bought one for me. I bought one for Juliet. It's my... It, w- it, was, it was my, my idea. idea. Yeah. 
Um, so they're both kind of like grasping at straws here. I think David is David's hoping just to get away scot free with the money. I think he realizes that Juliet once he finds the ticket that Juliet's just been playing him. Mm-hmm. So he's just trying to get away. I think Alex at this point is hoping that him and Juliet will just have the money together. Um, okay. He cut well. Oh, because, sure, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Once David you know, is what, out of the picture, we, what, however, they can, we get they, David, can, they can run away. Then we can run away. Yeah. Together. So right. So David can't back right. come back and find them. Um, but what happens is that we it escalates into violence, and the three of them are just kind of beating the shit out of each other. It's bad. Um, with and pretty much anything that they could find around the house, yeah, you know, get like their a toaster, hands on, right? The, kicking each, yeah. And the set, the set really becomes a character. Then. It does it becomes an accomplice in their uh, attempted, you know, yeah. crimes, uh, violence. So we have the three of them just beating the shit out of each other, and um, Alex is pinned to the floor by David, who is about to stab him in the heart, and. At the very split second before David could stab Alex, Juliet stabs David right through the throat with a knife. Right through the back of the neck, through the throat. And you see it come out. Yeah. Isn't there, isn't there a scene in the original Friday the 13th like that where he's lying in bed and the hand comes up? and Yeah, Kevin. And, that was uh, Kevin, Kevin Bacon. Bacon. Right, yeah. right. And then, um, then the, through the throat. And uh, that was actually, speaking of, you know, in Friday the 13th, that was a prosthetic effect. That was done, and here in Shallow Grave, there's no, uh, there was no CGI. They couldn't afford CGI with their 1994 budget. CGI was much more expensive at the time because it was just coming in. So all the all the effects here are practical. So they actually made like a neck with a retractable knife. Woo! Yeah. So that's wow. a pretty, that's like a, that the cuff went over his neck. Yeah, and then it would shoot out. Yep. Yep. You get up it, the. It's very effective. It is. So we have David lying there dead on the floor. Does does he then stab Alex and miss the heart and get his shoulder instead? Or has he... How does that happen? I can't remember. She does it? She does it. She... So she takes the knife, stabs him. Go on. Go on. Right. Um, no, I, I think what happens is that David falls... He's, so when he he's fl- stumbles or flinches, yeah, or... he accidentally stabs Alex she in the comes, shoulder. In the sh- yeah, kind of like between your your um your neck and your shoulder, your upper pec. Yeah, here, yeah, um, which th- and this is important, and you're and, about to explain why for her yes. character and the the writer to have written it this way. Yes. So the like like we mentioned, John Hodge was a uh, was a doctor uh, who went on to to become the screenwriter and. Uh, Juliet's character, uh, Carrie Fox, portraying Juliet is a, a Juliet is a doctor, so she checks the um, the wound where Alex is stabbed, the position of the knife and, in the and, body, and sees that it is not striking any vital organs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, his he's breathing. His, his lungs haven't been punctured. The mm-hmm. heart. It's it's in a spot where it kind of just went through uh, fat and muscle, um, and she realizes that okay, I, I don't really have the heart to kill Alex. I don't want him to die, but I want to get away with this money. So she she sees that he's he's going to live, but I got to make sure that he doesn't get up. So she 
takes like a, a book or something and hammers this <laughs> it's, knife. It's, it's horrible. It's, yeah. It's terrible. So she, and he's screaming bloody so murder. He's, yeah. So she's incapacitated him because he's like pinned. Yeah. To, now, he, even though she's going to Rio de Janeiro, he's still going to spill the beans. Like she's, you know, she's still going to, her whole story's going to be told. Sure. Um, but go on. She can't, she doesn't have the heart to kill him. No. That's the thing. She does, she there is a part of her that does care about him, like his sister would for a brother. Right, uh-huh. and I, th- I think that, I think her threshold was like, okay, I've killed, I killed one of my two, friends, yeah. brothers. Yeah, I, I can't kill. Yeah, I, I, I can't kill the. Yeah, both like, of them. But I can, but I can make sure he's you know, nailed to the ground while I get away with this. Money. I mean, and but not only that. Um, If both of them were dead, it would be very, very clear who did it. Yeah. So I mean, yeah. It, it, it would this be, way it could it could be uh, Alex say, and, and David. He getting said, into a, she said, kind right, of thing. Sure. Because whatever Alex said, well, she could say, well, no, 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 no. Yep. He's lying. This is, this yep. is what happened. But so if Alex, if they were both dead, it would be crystal clear. And she's not. She doesn't touch the knife. Nope. She doesn't get her fingerprints on it. No, she doesn't. She checks the. It's mix. David's fingerprints. Yes. She checks to make sure that he's going to live, but then she makes sure that he's not getting up by, like, driving this, like a hammer driving a nail into, you know. Oh, it's terrible. So, the ending now. So, I was not, we weren't, this is weird. The ending is well, weird. Well, let's, because just, let's just say, first of all, she leaves with the money. I think you see... You don't see her at the airport in the parking lot until after what we're about to talk about. Isn't yes. that right? So go ahead So with what we're about to talk about. So we see Alex pinned to the floor, bleeding out all over the place. Huge puddle of blood. And then what seems like what I initially thought upon reviewing was a dream sequence because we had the inspector here and we had the forensics team but they're taking pictures of him. Mm-hmm. They're not. He's not being attended to by medics. No, there's not like an ambulance driver here no. to, carting him to the hospital like you would think. He's just kind of lying there. They're like looking around the, the the scene. This is not the. This is not the way a police procedure would work. It's very surreal. It's, highly, highly stylized. He looks. Uh, Ewan McGregor looks very fresh faced and yeah, healthy. He doesn't even though look he's like lying in a, in a puddle of his own blood. You would think that he would be pale, right? Because like oh, he's losing right. all this blood, right? And he is smiling because he's yes, smiling. underneath. He uh, is the money. Is the money. Literally, s- under the floorboards that he's being pinned, pinned to, right. is the money. So he is smiling, and you get that. But still, it's all, all very surreal. With all the commotion that's been going on in that uh, flat, in that apartment, um, I it, I found it hard to believe that anyone would come upstairs to, you know... Find uh, to find Alex pinned to the floorboards. I thought he would definitely bleed to death, most definitely. He's not being attended to, you're right, by medics at all. They actually dubbed in him saying hello, inspector, just to kind of show the viewer that he is still alive because, as Danny 
Danny Boyle says in the commentary, that little bit of commentary you did play for me, um, people got, people quote, got it into their heads that he was dead. Yeah. And he's he's kind of blaming the viewer for misinterpreting the <laughs> scene, but it's like this scene is way off the tracks here. Yeah. It doesn't fit in with the rest of the movie. It's highly, it looks like a dream sequence. I, I until watch, until listening to the commentary, I was, I figured it was, it was a dream sequence. I thought, I thought Alex was dead because it just, like, how would you? Yeah, because real. This movie is very. I mean, it does have some absurd things that happen, but for the most part, it's pretty grounded and straightforward. But yeah, to have someone taking pictures of a guy pinned to the floor with a knife, yeah, and not being tended to medically, it's not feasible. It's no. not. It's not real. It's, it's just not. that's the bottom so, line. Yeah, which is so why this movie is like the ending to me. Until I listened to the commentary, I was like, "Oh, this is just like a dream sequence." He's He's like, he's probably having like, he's slowly bleeding out and he's having like his last couple breaths before he dies. Like a hallucinogenic reverie. Right. And he's just thinking like, yeah, hello, inspector. Like, this is, this is how they're going to find me now. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it's just bizarre. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's not, like you said, it's not realistic because like. I don't care what country you're in. Like, no, you're going to be attended to. Yeah. The first thing that's going to be, <laughs> medically, you walk into medically, a scene. You have to be. You do. Yeah. Do you want, imagine the lawsuit right. that he would have? Right. <laughs> They're like, like yeah, sitting. Yeah. Right. He exactly. would be like, uh, yeah, I was stabbed <laughs> to the like literally stabbed to the floor, and, and they, they just, took out my picture, <laughs> milled around, puttered around. I don't know <laughs> while like, I was bleeding and bleeding and bleeding. Again, there was no mention of this. But I, I don't know if this is, like, some shot at tabloid journalists to, like... <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Like, uh, uh, fuck you, tabloid journalists. <laughs> your guess is as good as mine. You you like to take other people's pictures? Oh, sure. Here's us taking sure. your picture. I mean, in that regard, it's, it works. It's kind if of If it like, were a little bit more clear. You yeah. Know, but still, like, this this isn't that kind of movie. No. It's not really interesting. And I don't think in, that was in, the intent. No. I think that it's like unintentionally I think it's unintentionally satirizing tabloid journalism. Yeah. <laughs> it, it just happen, it just I mean, happens to work. Yeah. And like I, when but, you think about it that way it really is effective actually. Yeah. You would love to see a tabloid journalist, you know, on the other side of things like that. But I bet you dimes to, to donuts that if we asked Danny Boyle he would be like, "Oh, no, but I'm glad you made that. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, I'm glad uh, you added uh, a little uh, extra depth uh, to my movie. Uh, 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 so you're welcome, Danny Boy. <laughs> there is a little bit of, though, I mean, I do want to ask him, like, what what were you thinking? Why did you make those choices at the very end of the movie? If It would be different if you were making choices like that throughout the film. Yeah. You, you didn't. So, you saved it till the very end, which is... Uh, you you got to you know which is the moment that you need to wrap things up as best as you possibly yeah. can you know so like i said if it wasn't for the commentary i i i thought alex was dead yeah and apparently i wasn't the only one yeah. to the to the point like you said they dubbed in and it's it's after filming because you only see the back of his head yeah. you don't actually see his lips move but he says hello inspector that's right um because they added this in to to me, that doesn't still that doesn't really cement the fact that he's dead. I still think that he's having like this near death, not near death. Like he's 
he's bleeding out. He knows he's going to die. I think, like you said, he's having like this bizarre hallucination right before he passes. That's what it seems like. That's what that's, I, that's the most logical assumption to make. Yes, it is. And uh, like you said, it's you almost want to like argue with him like yeah. over the commentary, be like. Yeah, I mean, what? that's hilarious. Well, we, we dubbed it in because people got it into their heads that he was dead, dude. But like you said, like, the scene is so, it's so surreal. It's really ambivalent. It's it's like what... Ambiguous a, is it's the like word. A, it's like a Saturday Night Live sketch. I wouldn't go there. Well, it is with them mulling that's around while thinking. he's dying or That's bleeding. what I'm saying. Sure. Like, you would have, sure. you would have, like... They would be talking, they'd be, drink, they'd be drinking coffee, eating donuts, and talking about, you know... The who won the game the night before? Exactly, yeah. like yeah. Yeah. like it would be like your host, Ewan McGregor. Yeah, like this right. would be a sketch. Yeah, like right. he's lying on the floor and he's like, "Yeah, can you do something about the knife yeah, on my right. shoulder? <laughs> Could you stop taking my picture, please? I'm pinned to the floor." Like, so I had to take it back. My 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 only critique of the movie initially was that I didn't think that David's descent into madness was. Not warranted or justified. It just happened too quickly. I, I'm backpedaling on that because it, for me, this this viewing something clicked in me, and I'm like, okay, I get what the psyche is. My criticism now is that I, I want to believe that Alex is dead because the realistic, like, if he's alive, it just raises so many different questions. Like. It- it would have been better if they'd left it ambiguous. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Now, now, with all this being said, it is still beautifully shot. Oh, absolutely. Him lying, the, the camera looking down on him on the floorboards with the blood and the knife and his... He looks very youthful and exuberant and healthy as fuck. Yeah. And then the camera panning down uh, past the floorboards where the knife is through the wood and it's dripping blood on yep. the queen yes. on those bills. I mean, it's it's beautifully shot. It is. Beautifully shot. And it, it's... I mean, I would say it's well acted, but if it's a surreal hallucination, it's well acted. Right, because he's if smiling. It's, yeah, it's like... Like I get it, you're you're happy you got the money. You're still in a if, great if deal of pain, right? And if you, <laughs> you I don't if you care. Live, live to have this money, right? So like, <laughs> so like I said, the the ending is bonkers. But we find out that Juliet has this breakdown when she finally opens up the briefcase. She acts it beautifully. Also, she's she is um she is. A mess in that car. Yes. She's just beating on that, crying and beating on her steering wheel. She's, it's all, I mean, it's all right there. Yeah. Raw, raw emotion. She is so, so, you haven't seen her this upset at all. No. She's usually very composed. I mean, even though she does lose it at the end, they all lose it at the they end. All... But she, she loses it even more when she finds out that that money is not money, that it's just shredded tabloids. Yeah. And you see it blowing in the wind in her car. And, and like, then she's and then she does it. She goes into the airport and she takes catches her plane to Rio I, de Janeiro. I think she realizes there's nothing there's nothing, nothing to left. do. No. She can't she can't she has no choice. Just start anew in Rio de Janeiro. Yeah, I don't know how. I guess you can be the how she's gonna be a doctor there. I guess she, I don't know. I don't know. It's all gonna follow her. Yeah. I mean you can't really yeah, she can't even she doesn't even have the cash no. to like buy a shack on the beach or something and get away so, from it all. I, the, this, I don't know. The ending is very, it's ambu- ambiguous, but like, 
kind of it's, still, it's bizarre. It's still it's still satisfying. It's no it's no, still no it is. And then the icing on the cake for me <laughs> was the final credits. Yes, and you see the three of them. Back in their happier days, yes, laughing and laughing and laughing. And here, I we watched it together, and I'm sitting there. You know, I'm like, oh, uh, how much we laughed. Yes, how much we had fun. Remember those days. Remember when one third of us wasn't dead. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and they're and they're just laughing and laughing and right. laughing. And it, laughing. It, it's almost like the opening. It's. It, it's like the movie went backwards. Yeah, it's like the opening <laughs> credits to a bad sitcom. Yeah. Like like three friends just like <laughs> laughing, and, and you have the and, theme music playing. Right, right. And and I, but they're laughing a little too much. I was saying, yeah. like when you see three people laugh this much, like something's up. Something's wrong. Yeah, <laughs> they're covering up. So even back then, so even back then, it seems like their behavior was covering up something that was underneath in their characters right. that we get to see fully exposed by the end, and it's so not pretty. It's I just th- so not pretty. It's it's a character analysis almost more than it is anything else. Oh, absolutely. In this movie. It is. Yeah. Um, However genre I, you want to yeah, peg it. It's, um, I would say that it's, yeah, it's a dissection of these characters. Yeah. Uh, I think... It, it, it was interesting we were watching some of the interviews that they were talking about that maybe it's not a sexual repression but there's a repression in all three of them well, that is there unleashed is, yeah who says that one of the I think it's I think it's um, they, Carrie Fox saying it I think in, so in an interview she's saying that there's something um, sexually unfulfilled with all three of them so there's this kind of dead zone yeah where it should be they've all you know, like they friends more zoned alive. each other <laughs> They all what? They all friend zoned each other. What does that mean? You never heard that if you're dating someone and they put you in the friend zone. Oh, you know, you're no longer a, uh, <laughs> oh. a potential sexual partner. Oh, oh. that's kind oh. of what I it feels oh. like. You're no longer a sexual what? A, a contender? Yeah. What did you say? Predator? I didn't say predator. I didn't say contender. I wanted to say contender. Though. Okay. So we'll, well go yeah. with that. Yeah, no, that's the worst. And that's, we all have been there. That's yeah. the worst. There's nothing worse than that. It's like, and, hey, you want to be my, uh, you want me to be a friend. A uh, friend. Yeah, friend. you're like, I, I got a lot of friends yeah, already, okay? I don't, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let me know when do you. You're not the kind of friend that I want. Yeah. You know I mean? It's just like, so, um, but uh, per our rule, we, we try not to go over the runtime of the movie. So we're going to have to start wrapping this up. We're good. So I didn't want to go to trivia on IMDb, but I did. And I found it. I did find a lot of interesting stuff. So let's then, wrap it up with some trivia. Okay. So it was the most commercially successful British film of 1995. Great. Yeah. Uh Ewan McGregor's mother has a cameo as one of the uh, one of the uh, interviewees at the beginning. Okay. Yeah, that's kind of cute. Uh, the car was dumped in a quarry and it was never resurfaced, or so it's probably still there. Yeah, they tried. It was dumped in a quarry that they tr- that was supposed to be filmed uh, filled with uh, something called ballast, which was meant to inflate. And, and uh, lift it back up. Lift so the that car they could back up so it could be retrieved, but that didn't work. So uh, that car might still be in that quarry. Let's take a shallow gray field trip and to, see to, Sc- uh, to Scotland. I've been to Scotland. Like you, 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 excuse me. You can go into. There's so there's so much country in Scotland uninhabited. I don't know how we would find this quarry or how far out in the boondocks it is. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, and then the color scheme for the flat was based on Edward Hopper's painting, Hotel Lobby. I heard that as well, yeah. That's interesting. So. Okay. Um, this is Danny Boyle's father's favorite movie of his. Yeah. When he went to see, he saw Slumdog Millionaire and he said, well, it, it wasn't Shallow Grave. He said that about, he said that about all Danny Boyle's movies, so. <laughs> Uh, that man to constantly reference your first piece of work like you can't live past he's it. He's gonna tr- forever trying to please his father, and he's probably like, "Son, you got it right the first time. Yeah. You didn't have to make all these yeah. other movies. You should have. You should have just come live with me. We would have had a good time together. You didn't you have to make all this. You should have packed it in after shallow grief. You peaked with your first movie. Um, so we will end with this little bit of trivia. Um, this comes from the uh, writer John Hodge and is mentioned in Danny Boyle's commentary. It really doesn't have much to do with Shallow Grave other than I think that it's very interesting. But uh, there is a code among doctors and that if you ever hear the phrase T.F. Bundy, and this is in reference to you, you're in, you're in some trouble. Yikes. Because T.F. Bundy... T-F-B-N-D-Y, T-F Bundy, is an acronym, an acronym. acronym, thank you, for totally fucked but not dead yet. Oh, Lord. So, <laughs> if you're lying in the emergency room and you're referred to as a T.F. Bundy, make sure that you have your will uh, well, well in So, with that bit of random knowledge... Um, we thank you so much for joining us here on the Cold Film Companion Podcast... Uh, we love doing this show because we just have a blast watching some weird movies, some interesting movies, some movies that we haven't seen in years or for something like Repo Man, something that Andrew had never seen yeah. with Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, a movie I had never seen. So yeah. this this is what this show is all about. Yeah. We want you to interact with us on our Facebook page. Post your favorite cult movies. Post suggestions for us. Uh, tweet at us at the cult film comp. And um, give us suggestions and um, for movies and what you liked and what you we didn't like and um, actually just just something before we um, we end before we're gonna end on TF Bundy but I I think that it's worth noting because this is something that sometimes we fail to do why is this a cult movie and I have a couple reasons I would say that for someone that is um, Familiar with Danny Boyle, probably uh, familiar with Train Spotting, familiar with Slumdog Millionaire. Twenty Eight Days Later, I think this is kind of um, a, a hidden gem in his uh, filmography. Um, you know, l- like Andrew said, he's not I, the biggest Danny Boyle fan, but I mean, there's he this 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 is the type of movie though that lends itself very well to having a cult following. Right, it really does. So I mean, I don't. I don't know that much about the specifics about its following, but I can definitely imagine it having, you know, a very specific uh, group of people that really appreciate it. Because, well, you you got to figure that we have, and another thing is you're going to have people that are Doctor Who fans that are uh, fans of Christopher Eccleston and want to see more of his movie. The, mm-hmm. Oh, he did a movie with Danny Boyle? I'm going to check it out. Mm-hmm. Or... Ewan McGregor. That's like mm-hmm. the big one there. Like, sure. If, um, I mean, this is his first th- uh, theatrical movie. So if you're if you 
familiar with Ewan McGregor in any sort of sense and you want to see kind of like sometimes you you, you find an actor you you kind of want to see well he's pretty versatile he's a, he's a talented actor I like what he does so I'm going to check out some of other his movies so I think that this movie yeah it lends itself just because of kind of the pedigree that was behind it exploding it to future kind of um fandom and um in future success that looking back you kind of want to you kind of sometimes want to see where someone started from like so the whole completionist uh aspect yeah like approach to it but also people that just dig like dark comedies or dig like british kind of like thrillers if you're like um it's it's hard for me it's hard for me to accept uh, movies as being cult though when they were so successful. Based on that, I'm gonna push Sunset Boulevard on our uh, repertoire <laughs> because I think you told me like maybe it's too successful and it is. It was made into yeah. and Android Weber made it into a, a, a musical. So I mean but, that that's a that's pretty successful right there. But you but gotta still, remember uh, this uh, Shallow Grave was not successful in the United States. Yeah, but I mean, okay, so what? It's a cult movie in the U.S., basically. You could say that much? Yeah, sure. Okay. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah no, you I mean, could. it's our show. You could. We, you could. We, I we still could justify I'm it. I'm still pushing Sunset Boulevard. I still think Sunset Boulevard uh, has a very specific audience in a lot of ways, those who really appreciate it. So, But anyway, this is Shallow Grave. Uh, it was not successful in the United States. It does have a following here in the United States. It does. So, and um, it's something. It, it's a fun movie to recommend, and uh, mm-hmm. I rec- my par- I recommended it I mean, to my parents to check out. Yeah, yeah, I told my roommate about it that we were doing it. I asked him if uh, he knew about it. He's like, no, but he he's an avid watcher of Doctor Who. So now I can so, take that back to him and be like, well, it's got Doctor Who in it. Yeah. yeah so I'll um, make him watch it. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, I, I, and another thing here about the Cold Film Companion, we're kind of, we're trying to kind of I, maybe broaden the spectrum of what constitutes a cult movie. Why? There's so many cult movies that are just specifically cult movies that we can do. <laughs> I'm just challenging you to be an ass. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> All right, we've gotten way past the, uh, the the length here. Thank you for listening. I'm going we to, love that you actually enjoy this. For I'm real. going to take a kitchen knife and pin Andrew to the floor now. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll smile through the whole yeah. thing. And then I'm going I'm to call the police and we're going to take your picture and leave you pinned to my floor. <laughs> and I'm going to take my ticket to Rio de Janeiro and do the show from there. Can I hide all your DVDs under the floorboards first? Yeah. Well, those, those are my most prized possessions. Exactly. <laughs> exact touche. Yeah. Um, but thank you so much for joining us. We are on Facebook. Join us the Facebook page. Interact with us. Hit us up on Twitter. Hit us up on Instagram. And uh, we're going to be part of the Blind Knowledge Collective launching uh, February 1st. Um, and we're going to be expanding the platforms that you can find this show on to... Um, to just uh, kind of bring the cult following, you know, like any cult, kind of like Jonestown, we want you to drink the Kool-Aid. That's probably a bad analogy. That is Chris <laughs> saying that and not me. Poor analogy on my part. I apologize. Before I make even more of an ass of myself, I'm just going to wrap up this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Andrew, for uh, for, for putting up with my nonsense. Oh, I love it. You know I love it. Yeah. And uh, we bid you all a good night.